The scene begins in an attic of an old farmhouse. The attic could be from any generation, as attic construction hasn't changed much over the past hundred years or so. The rafters are bare and unfinished. Dust motes drift lazily through a single ray of light that shines from a tiny gable window near the peak of the roof. The floor isn't necessarily finished, so much as it has hardwood planks laid across the joists that hold up the ceiling from the rooms below. Near the window, we see a wooden rocking chair, sturdy and polished with a combination of care and age. It hasn't been used in quite some time, and there is a layer of fine dust covering it. As we draw closer, we notice that there are a few simple wooden bars strung up between the rafters. Hanging from these bars is a myriad of objects, bones, coins, locks of hair, and a hand-sewn poppet stuffed with untold materials, its button eye dangling from a loose stitch. What catches your attention more than anything else is a long flaxen cord with nine intricately tied knots. Bound within each knot is an aged chicken feather. This cord sways gently from an unseen draft blowing through the loose planks. You're unsure why this cord was made or what purpose it serves, but you can tell that someone spent a good deal of time in this space crafting all manner of hidden magical talismans. A similar scene unfolded in a hidden attic room within an old house in Somerset, England, before its demolition in 1878. This item, now known as a witch's ladder, was comprised of twine with the victim's hair incorporated into its braids, as well as a series of feathers from a black hen. According to folk tradition, this item would be placed beneath the mattress of the victim, and then, after they slept over it, the ladder would be hidden. The curse from this object could not be broken unless this garland could be found and thrown into water. It seems that someone in Somerset had a world of misfortune, considering the witch's ladder was found hanging in a room that had no doors nor windows. I'm your host Jason, and you're listening to the Esoteric Book Club. Welcome back, goblins! You're listening to the Esoteric Book Club. Tonight, we are doing a deep dive into green magic with the book Witchcraft Into the Wilds by Rachel Patterson. Before we get started, I need to point out that this show couldn't be done without the generous support of my patrons. I want to give a shout out to my longtime supporter, Samantha Shaver, to newly upgraded member Callie, and to a listener who made a one-time donation, Carla. Thank you to everyone who contributes. I couldn't do any of this without you. Rachel Patterson is the High Priestess of the Kitchen Witch Coven, Elder of the Online Wild Witches and Kitchen Witch School, Writer, and Blogger. In her bio, she states, I like to laugh and to eat cake. I feel closer to her already. This book was published in 2018 through Moon Books, who publishes most, if not all, of Rachel's books. In fact, looking through her other titles, it looks as if Rachel may have written a large chunk of the early books in the Pagan Portal series. 
She even has a spin-off series called Kitchen Witchcraft, which has more detailed information on topics specific to that practice. But we're here to talk about witchcraft into the wilds. The format of this book is pretty straightforward. It's instructional, but also presented linearly, so lessons will build upon themselves. In addition to standard lessons, there are also journal prompts, guided meditations, and a series of craft projects. It's a very hands-on book that asks you to actively participate in the lessons. There are 26 chapters, which start with the basics. The Wheel of the Year, Active Journaling, Grounding, Meditation, Altars, Offerings, etc. Nothing really super in-depth, but good for someone who is new to these concepts. Where this book really shines, though, is when it starts to get into the theme of its title, The Wilds. The Wilds is generally described as anything outside human civilization. The woods, mountains, lakes, rivers, fields, and swamps. Any place where nature has control. This wildness begins in Chapter 4 with ethical wildcrafting. She describes it as, quote, Ethical wildcrafting is the practice of harvesting plants and trees conscientiously to avoid damaging the health of the plant population or the overall ecological system. In this system of beliefs, you should only harvest items that have been, quote, gifted to you by naturally falling from the plant, so leaves, tree limbs, seeds, and nuts that fell off of their own accord. On top of that, you must also ask permission of the plant before taking said item. Before I state my opinion on this belief, I want to say that if this is your personal practice, that I find it admirable and I applaud your dedication. That said, I also find this to be a little short-sighted and unwieldy. While there is no need to cut down an entire tree to gather a single branch, there's also no need to rely entirely upon deadfall. There are proper healthy ways to cut pieces from trees that can, in fact, be beneficial to the plant. If not to the tree specifically, then to the other species around it. Moving beyond trees, this practice loses efficacy when you consider herbs and roots. It is almost impossible to harvest herbs without cutting them while they are green. When harvesting roots, you will almost certainly kill the plant that they are attached to. So while it is a lofty goal to only utilize parts that have fallen via natural causes, it should not be your only option, nor is it the only ethical option. Presenting proper, safe, and ethical techniques for gathering materials should be a big part of this book, right? Which leads us directly into the next part, how to harvest. Quote, if you can collect fallen flowers, seeds, twigs, and so on, then even better, because the plant has already finished with them. But if you want to remove them directly from the plant, always be careful not to damage the plant itself. End quote. Patterson follows up by advising you to only take what you need and always use sharp instruments, because dull blades leave jagged edges or tears that can lead to infection. This is all excellent introductory advice for people new to gathering materials from the wilderness. She then continues with specific directions for harvesting flowers, seeds, bark, roots, leaves, berries, and hedgerows. 
which probably clues you in to the fact that she's from the UK. Moving beyond this chapter, we progress into two area-specific topics, fields and fens, and forests and woodlands. To be honest, I didn't expect much from the fields and fens chapter, especially since it's only four pages long. I was pleasantly surprised, though, because this chapter elaborated on the importance of using wild grasses for magic, including a very specific type of magic. Knots. You may or may not have heard of knot magic, at least beyond what I mentioned in the introduction to this episode, but it is an old type of folk magic where the act of tying a knot is fueled by intention, incantation, the type of knot used, and the number of knots used in the strand. It's actually quite ingenious and symbolically makes a lot of sense. Think about it in general terms. What does a knot actually do? It joins, binds, and ensnares. So what do you think knot magic would do? It can join two subjects or two objects together. It can bind and prevent a person from taking action. Or it could ensnare a subject, placing them under your control. Consider the witch's ladder from the introduction. The target's hair is braided into the cord, linking them to the effects of the spell. Each knot binds a black chicken feather to the subject. Now, the feather isn't literal in this case. You're not trying to turn the person into a chicken. The feather is representative of sickness. So the intent is to join the victim with illness and misfortune. It creates a magical bond between the two that can only be undone by water. There's a lot of theories about why water can dissolve magical bonds, but in this case, the antithesis of sickness is cleanliness. So water is used to wash away the ill effects of the spell, not by washing the person, but by washing the charm itself. Moving into the chapter on forests and woodlands, we focus a lot on, well, you guessed it, trees. There's a few little gems in this chapter, too. For example, the different descriptors for woodlands and what they mean. A brake is a grouping of shrubs, briars, or fallen trees. A copse is a small wood. A dingle is a deep-wooded valley or dell. Here in the Appalachians, that would be the typical location where you would find a holler. And some of the best blackberries can be found in a holler, so would that make them dingleberries? I may be too immature to continue this line of discussion. Also included is a list of trees and their properties. It's not super in-depth, but there are several species that you don't always hear about, such as apple, cherry, hazel, and walnut. Usually, you can find information on the fruits or nuts that these trees produce, but information on the woody part of the tree is often overlooked, so it's nice to see that included in this title. And what is a book on tree magic without the obligatory tree meditation and discussion of the oum? This may not be familiar to all of you, but I don't want to go into too much depth on the topic. Basically, the tree meditation is a guided visualization where you pretend to be a tree. 
and the Owen is a medieval Gaelic writing system that uses branches extending from a central line, thus making them look like trees. Much like runes, the Owen has been adopted into use as a modern divinatory system that uses the properties and aspects of specific tree. In the final part of this chapter, there is a brief discussion on the Celtic tree calendar. Even the author states that the origins are dubious at best, but she gives the information that is available and lets the reader decide the authenticity for themselves. Her follow-up is quite interesting, though. She points out that the reader can create their own tree divination system and their own tree calendar based on the species around them. This is an important reminder that I feel should be in more books on magical practices. Magic is personal, so it's not just tied to you, but it's tied to your surroundings. If an Australian wanted to utilize tree divination, they may add in eucalyptus. Someone closer to the equator may use different species of palm trees. It's important that the symbolism is relevant to you. The next chapter is, again, something unique that you don't often see in magical texts. Tree Spirit. It's not a long chapter, but it talks about the dryad and how that is simply the most widely known term for a tree spirit. Did you know that there are specific names for tree spirits that dwell within different species of trees? The Meliae live within ash trees. Meliades live within apple or fruit trees. The Ampeloi live within grapevines. These are just a few examples, but it shows that there were many concepts for plant spirits in ancient Greece, let alone the rest of the world. There is also a brief primer on fairies at the end of the chapter that goes over... I guess the best way to describe it would be safe handling instructions? Things like, never give them your name, or never eat or drink while in the fairy realm. Things like that. The final tree-specific chapter is specifically on leaves, sticks, and seeds. There's still a lot to cover, though, so I'm going to leave this chapter for you to discover. I will give you a quick and dirty summary of it, though. Tree nuts are generally used for protection and prosperity magic, probably because they are encased within a shell and because they're a good source of food. The next few chapters are super interesting, since they deal with specifics about wildcrafted materials that aren't normally covered in books like this. First is the chapter on roots. It begins with two of the most popular and most common roots used in magic, Mandrake and High John the Conqueror. The other roots listed are what really drew my attention. Roots that many people wouldn't think of using, such as burdock for uncrossing and protection, dandelion for prophetic dreams, or valerian root for black magic. There's no real depth to the descriptions, though, but it is a good place to start for someone who is beginning their research. There's even more, though. Have you ever considered root vegetables as magical ingredients? Neither had I until reading this. It seems that root vegetables are usually used for either protection or, oddly enough, sex magic. Who knew? I guess it's because so many are phallic-shaped. Moving on, we get to blossoms, berries, mushrooms, and thorns. Many books talk about flowers, 
but few go into the use of non-herbal flowers, such as apple blossoms, chickweed, gorse, or thistle. Much like I mentioned in previous chapters, there's not a ton of depth, but it is a good primer for further research. The section on berries is exactly what you would expect. The section on mushrooms can be summed up as, don't eat them. There's a few more details, but not much. The section on thorns really drew my attention. This is something that I've been using on and off myself for a few years, and it's an interesting concept. Traditionally, thorns were used for hexing and cursing. Think about stabbing a voodoo doll and you get the rough idea. Something similar could be done using a specially dressed candle with the thorns embedded into the wax. As the candle burns down, the thorns, and their representative magic, are released. But taking a naturalistic approach, we have to look at what purpose thorns serve for the plant that grows them. If something gets too close or tries to meddle with the plant, the aggressor will be greeted with a rather pronounced message. As such, thorns can be used for a more aggressive form of protection magic. Nothing says keep away quite like getting stabbed. If I were to ask you, what is a naturally magic object? How would you respond? Seriously, think about it. I would consider some stones to be naturally magical. Lightning is certainly magical. But it's not something we really think about that often. But there are some things that are intrinsically magical. Several are covered in this book. Soil, stones, bones and you're going to kick yourself for not thinking of this one, horseshoes. I've talked about different soils before, specifically in the episodes on urban magic and 365 days of hoodoo. Stones, more commonly known as crystals, are a staple of modern magical work. But we're looking at what makes witchcraft into the wilds unique. And bones certainly fills that role. This is a time when I feel the directions given in the beginning of the book holds especially true. Do not go out and kill an animal just to get their bones. If you're a hunter, or you know a hunter, use that opportunity to get bones. Save them from your chicken dinner. Look for them while you're hiking. Or, as the author suggests, gather them from roadkill. Yeah, that last part may be a bit much for some people, but it is an ethical source of animal bones. Also included in this chapter is a short list of magical folkloric uses for bones, most of which seem to fall into the category of bodily ailments. Several deal with toothaches, headaches, or birthmarks. It seems that bone magic is a very physical and curative practice. Generally, there are some, like turtle bones, that deal with protection magic, but come on, it's a turtle. That one seems obvious. This book does have a specific preparation for bones that I have not encountered before, and that is the red bone. While the book doesn't go into any details about why these bones were created, Patterson does give a few methods for making one. First, you must clean the bone, using one of the few methods provided within the book, and then you mix a paste from red wine and red ochre. 
Now, most people don't have access to a supply of red ochre, so brick dust will also work. Basically, you cover the cleaned bone in this paste, wrap it in plastic so it doesn't dry out, and you let it sit. After at least a day, remove the bone and wipe off the paste. Any lingering paste should be left to dry and then brushed off with a soft bristle brush later. Just don't wash the bone. That would undo all of your work. Like I said, I'm not sure why a red bone would be made, but I'm going to guess it's part of a bone-casting divination practice. Now, how can you talk about the wilds if you don't talk about the four elements, right? The book covers many, many aspects of working with the earth element, so there isn't a specific chapter devoted to it. The chapter on fire is probably what most of you would expect. Incense, candles, smudging, etc. It's when we hit upon the water chapter that things start to get interesting. I come from a landlocked state, so anything dealing with water has to do with rivers, but Patterson is from the UK, so the ocean is relatively close by. She goes into different types of shells and their meanings, different types of sea plants and seaweeds, driftwood, tumbled sea stones, sea glass, and even to the magical properties of sand. Once you get beyond the magic of the seashore, there is a section on different types of magical waters, how to collect or craft them, and how to use them. Most people have heard of moon water, but have you heard of storm water collected during a raging storm, charged by lightning? What about ghost water that is created much the same way that grave dirt is formed? How about rainbow water that can only be gathered from rainfall that takes place when a rainbow is present? Speaking of rainbows, there's a bit of rainbow lore in this chapter, probably because there has to be a certain amount of water in the atmosphere to create a rainbow. Otherwise, that would be in the next chapter. Weather. Honestly, there's a lot of overlap between the chapter on water and the chapter on weather. As a result, the weather chapter mostly has to do with omens of different weather types and predictions of future climate patterns. For example, if there is thunder in November, a fertile year, for crops, is coming. Or a cat sneezing predicts rain. Or even a single crow flying is a sign of bad weather, but a pear signals fine weather. Since we're talking about predictions, let's take a look at the chapter on divination. What I really appreciate is that Patterson doesn't just rehash the same divination techniques. She talks about the principles behind divination, lesser-known techniques, and how to create your own. She even gives the example of her personal divination tile set that incorporates pictographs of natural elements that she calls the Wild Witch Runes. As we reach the end of the book, the author goes into animals, spirits, elementals, and nature deities. I'm going to save the animal section for patrons, but the other sections are mostly just lists and descriptions, which are handy if you're just starting out. Sometimes, just knowing the name of what you're researching is a big step in itself. So that's a basic summary of what you can find in this book. Let's talk about the writing a bit. This is not Patterson's first book, so her writing style is developed and well thought out. 
there's only a few times that I had to even reread a passage. Sometimes sentences just felt awkward or overly lengthy, but I think that it could be a UK writing style more than anything else. This book covers a broad range of topics, so it seems that the author was going for sheer volume of information over minutia. This is very much still an introductory book, but it is more detailed than most Intro to Witchcraft books on the market. I honestly had a hard time being objective with this book simply because I grew up in the wilderness, and I often forget a lot of what is covered in here may be completely new to people. Looking back, for a book that is only a little over 200 pages long, there is a ton of material covered, so I can't judge it too harshly. Hell, there's even stuff in here that I've never even heard of before. Hey guys, this is Postscript Jason. I thought of something that I wanted to say about this book that I had forgotten in the initial recording, so I came back and I'm adding this to it. There is one thing that really, really bothers me in this book. And it happened several times, so it's not like a one-off situation. There's several instances where rather than give the information that is necessary for the process, Rachel actually suggests that you turn to Google. While there is good information on the internet, I think asking a newbie to rely on a search engine is terrible advice. So while it doesn't really detract too much from the material that is in the book, it is a very big drawback in my opinion. So if you are a person who's interested in both magic and being outdoors, this book will probably appeal to you. If nothing else, it's a good way to look at the roots of a lot of modern magical practices. Sometimes, knowing where a tradition comes from can help guide the direction that it will be going in the future. As always, I'll post a link to the book in the show notes. The Esoteric Book Club can be found on Patreon, Instagram, Facebook, and at esotericbookclub.org. Intro and outro music is courtesy of Sarah Rudy and her band Hello June. You can find more of their work on bandcamp.com or at wearehellojune.com. Patrons, stick around for your episode extension. For the rest of you, until next time, remember, stay weird. Okay, weirdos, it's time to crack open the esoteric archives and take a closer look at the section on animals and how one of the animals listed may have once saved my life. What I really respect about this section is that Patterson doesn't immediately go to the spirit animal trope.